You are elected to be a leader, not to be a follower, not to be told what to do by rich, influential sectoral interests, including the miners, the loggers, and the people who want to exploit nature, let alone exploit people and take them down. So your job is to be in there advocating. But nevertheless, my experience is if you stand up and confront them and explain to people why you're doing that, you'll prosper. This week's guest has spent most of his life swimming against tides, running into headwinds, hacking through jungle. These challenges have held no fear for him, metaphorically or actually. Bob Brown, former Australian Senator, inaugural leader of Australia's Green Party, has made his love for Australia's wilderness, Tasmania's in particular, his abiding cause. A new film, The Giants, chronicles Bob Brown's efforts to persuade his fellow citizens to care for it as he does. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Bob Brown for the big interview. I wanted to start at the start and talk a bit about the political journey you've been on, but I thought if we begin at the origins of it, is it right that you started out in life as basically a a, a, you know, a, a Bob Menzies liberal, by which I mean for international audience an Australian conservative? That's right. And Bob Menzies was arguably the most prominent prime minister that Australia had ever had. He was a very staunch monarchist. In fact, when the Australian pound was changed to dollars, he tried as prime minister to have the dollar called the royal. But there was a bit of an upset about that and he backed off and we've got dollars instead. But he was a great orator. And we had, uh, he had a referendum against the communists in 1954 and I was quite astonished when the referendum went down and people said no we're not going to ban the communist party that's in conservative 1950s Australia but it didn't take me long to start questioning that background that I had as a youngster brought up as a Presbyterian with parents who supported the Liberal Party. Was there a particular epiphany you've spoken before about becoming a doctor and working at Royal Canberra Hospital and meeting people who'd been conscripted to go and serve in Vietnam but didn't want to go? Vietnam was very, very important. We could see on our television screens the agony of the Vietnamese people and there were huge demonstrations. The president of the US, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, had a million people out in the streets in Sydney. And at that time, the Premier, the Liberal Premier, the Conservative Premier of New South Wales, was quoted as saying, run the bastards over. And my head was in turmoil about this. But I soon learnt, uh, yes, I got to examine compulsory conscripts, young Australians who were being sent to Vietnam, whether they wanted to or not. There were some who wanted to go, and if they had flat feet, I'd pass them. There are others who didn't want to go, you know, and you'd say, well, you've got a little bit of acne there. Come back next week. Don't shower. Don't eat chocolate. Don't have any citrus fruit or cream. And they'd come back with acne all over them, and you'd have to fail them. The other thing which was a certain failure was homosexuality. I was a homosexual um, in the closet, very much uh, confined by the absurdity of not being able to talk about even my sexuality. And this was creating 
uh, you know, it was just like a volcano inside of me. Finally, in 1976, I made it public, but that wasn't until I'd been through the agony of even trying conversion therapy. And I lost my Christian faith because nothing happened on that regard. And I, I was frequently hearing about how, well, St. Paul says, you know, men who lie together should be stoned to death. So I abandoned that one. Although I've always kept to the basic creed of all those great religions, which is the golden rule, do unto others as you do unto yourself. And I'm grateful for having learnt the positive side of human relationships or a way to the positive side of human relationships from that religious background. By 1976, you have relocated to Tasmania, which is where you're speaking to us from, and there's a lot to talk about there, but there is one part of the Bob Brown myth pertaining to your time in London that I do want to clear up. Is it true that you were, in fact, attending at St Mary Abbott's Hospital in London when Jimi Hendrix was brought in, having overdosed in 1970? Yes, sadly, that is true, Andrew. I was in a boarding house in South Kensington, I took a locum's job as a young medical graduate at St Mary Abbott's Hospital and I was in care of the casualty there. The hospital's since gone too. When um, At 8 o'clock one morning when Jimmy was brought in by an ambulance and a stretcher coming up to the casualty and a quick look, uh, he'd been long since dead. His girlfriend was there as well. It was another Australian doctor that certified his death but it was very clear to me that there was nothing to be done and I had another urgently ill and able to be saved person in the casualty and I went back to tend to them. But there was Jimmy, aged 27. He was about to have a huge concert at the Isle of Wight, which I was very keen to get to, but that never came about. But I've never forgotten his very simple dictum that in the long run, we are all our children. He was talking about intergenerational equity and looking after those who come after us when almost nobody else was at that time. As we've been discussing, you moved to Tasmania in the early 1970s, not long after returning to Australia. And given what you've already described about your life at that point, it does seem an unorthodox choice. This was a conservative place even by Australian standards of the time. It was certainly not a hospitable environment for gay people. It didn't decriminalise homosexuality until 1997. What drew you to Tasmania? Oh, well, I was an environmentalist first and foremost, and I'd grown up in the bush in New South Wales. I loved the wild environment and wildlife. And Tasmania was in uproar in 1972 because the giant hydroelectric commission was building dams on all its rivers to create cheap electricity to attract heavy industries like aluminium and, and manganese works and zinc works and so on. And the defenders of Lake Pedder, there was a small group of largely middle-class people in Hobart and Launceston and Devonport in Tasmania who had taken up a campaign and it became the first national environmental campaign. This is the era, remember, of black and white television, but I'd seen it on the television, this beautiful lake and felt such a rapport with those people who were trying to defend it. I came to Tasmania to have a look at that lake, but also, as a kid, I was absolutely amazed by the potential for the Tasmanian tiger 
this largest marsupial carnivore left on Earth to still possibly exist in the wilds of Tasmania after its slaughter earlier on under government edict. And so I was also attracted to go and have a look for the Tasmanian tiger myself. And I landed a job as a general practitioner in the second city of Tasmania in the north, Launceston, and uh, joined a couple of other gents there in setting up the Tasmanian Tiger Research Centre and for the first year looked for that and also got to fly over Lake Pedder and its huge beach up in the mountains with this great lake next to it. Before that, all went under due to the environmentalists being just simply bulldozed by the power of the Hydroelectric Commission and both the political parties of the day. By the way, that led to the establishment of the world's first Greens Party, the United Tasmania Group, and I quickly fell in with those folk and the people fighting for Lake Pedder and suddenly found a new home in politics because they were espousing rights for Aboriginal people, respect for them, equality for women. Suddenly, here was a political movement for social justice, for the environment and for peaceful resolution of conflicts and supporting democracy. So instead of going into a more hostile environment, Andrew, I was really walking in. I I found myself at home. And of course, Tasmania is so beautiful. The weekend I arrived in the place, I sent my parents a card back to New South Wales, north of Sydney, saying, I'm home. This is it for me. And a year later, I found a house by the Liffey River, named after the river flowing through Dublin. Its Aboriginal name is Telepanga, under a mountain a thousand metres high. And uh, I've been there more or less ever since and just inspired by the, the beautiful nature of the place, which is what gives it its global reputation. I mean, this is the beginnings, I guess, of your career in politics, joining the United Tasmania Group, which was one of the first, if not the first, organised Green Party in the world, campaigning to save Lake Pedder, eventually unsuccessfully so, though you had better luck with the Franklin River, which we'll get to. Uh, You also protested against nuclear-powered American warships visiting Australia. There was a lot going on, and it prompts the question which I'm always interested in asking people who become politically active, whether as activists or politicians or both. I think most of us often look at things and think somebody should do something about this. Um, Have you ever figured out what it is in a particular person who looks at the thing and thinks, I should do something about this? Well, I think it was my dad. He was a policeman, and he left... Sydney because he didn't like the corruption within the force. He was a country policeman. We got moved every few years, but he was a very fair-minded man. But he inculcated into me and my siblings that if you see a wrong being done, a crime being committed, and you turn your eyes away from it and don't intervene, you're part of the problem. So very early on, I was taught by my good father that you either take part in justice or you're on the other side. There isn't this, I mustn't get involved component. By not getting involved, it's the old dictum, isn't it? That all evil needs to flourish is for good people to do nothing. So I I had that idea that you must take a stand. And in fact, the first protest I went to was in 1974 in Chicago. I went to visit a friend who was studying nuclear medicine there And there was a protest against Henry Kissinger coming to town. 
he had just supported the Greek generals who had staged a coup in Greece and smashed into the Athens Polytechnic, killing 19 students. And the students at the University of Chicago wanted a little protest outside a speech he was giving at a hotel in Chicago, so I joined them. I never had my photo taken so many times in my life by the security agents. I still think they're trying to work out who it was, but I found it didn't hurt. Felt better afterwards instead of being frustrated. And that was with me when I came to Tasmania and saw the environmental vandalism coming from the powers that be as if the environment was discounted to nothing. All that mattered was money. And then running into this nascent Green Party with its ethos of taking action, I was really found myself in a place that I wanted to be. I was very lucky that I crossed Bass Strait from Melbourne and landed in Tasmania. Do you think that example of your father, though, gave you an ultimate faith that institutions can be made to work? It's quite common among activists to see themselves as the eternal outsiders, that we don't want to get involved, that the whole system stinks, etc. But you'd had direct experience of somebody working within it as a police officer, no less, who you knew to be a good person. Did that give you a kind of faith that things like, for example, parliamentary politics can actually be bent towards justice? Yes, because it's very clear. If you don't become involved in upholding justice, then you're part of the problem. I'm with Winston Churchill on this. I'm a very great stickler for democracy. And, you know, Churchill said in 47, 1947, that warts and all, democracy has got its faults, but it's better than whatever else you can come up with by, you know, autocracies, plutocracies and so on. The problem is, of course, that in our era, democracy has been taken over by big money. It's bought the lobbyists, it's bought the advertising, it's bought the airwaves, large sections of the media, and it is very frustrating and it can be very demoralising for people that we're in a world where big money rules. We, are, we have a de facto plutocracy ruled by the rich, but, you know, everywhere I've been on the, uh, in the world, and I've been around a bit, and in Australia, good people do care. They do want things to be fair. You know, Australia's motto before recent conservative governments abolished it was a fair go. A fair go, mate. You never hear it anymore, Andrew. And I want to be on the side of people who will restore that and restore a sense of recognition that... This planet can do without us, but we can't do without it. And as we do to it, we're doing to ourselves. And we have to turn around this age of mass destruction of the environment in so many forms in order to feed money through the stock exchange into the pockets largely of already rich people at the expense of poor and that growing inequality between rich and poor. So I love the idea of being in such a free and democratic country and being able to stand up to the short-sighted materialism which has taken us over. But, you know, I uh, respect the fact that laws get passed that we don't like. Well, we have to live with them or stand up to them. That's the choice. I mean, nevertheless, is it difficult, or did you ever find it personally difficult to hold your nerve as you made that sort of ascent from being 
a, you know, a, a Tasmanian politician in the 1980s to becoming a federal senator by 1996. Because, you know, I grew up in Australia for quite a lot of that period. I can remember you, Bob, being called quite a lot of things, you know, a crank uh, and a weirdo, among other even less palatable epithets. Does it never get to you? Yes, it does. And particularly when I was on my own, you know, I'd go home and lick my wounds. And of course, you start wondering about your own thinking when you're under a constant tirade from those who are frightened. You start to wonder, can all these people insulting me be wrong? Yes, but then you look at history, you see. And and the, the real talisman for me, the great inspiration has been the suffragettes who were taunted by other women who the House of Lords said, you know, how could we possibly run an economy if women had a say? And yet those women prevailed. Most of them didn't live to see the equal vote, but they prevailed because the time for their idea had come. And any time I get tempted to be depressed about what's going on, I go and look at what others have put up with in prevailing and sometimes not prevailing against the brutes, you know, the big money movers and the power brokers in history and the suffragettes, you know, around the world, but not least, of course, in Britain, a tremendous source of inspiration for any activist who thinks the going's tough. Do you think there is still a definite value in extra-parliamentary direct action, though? I mean, you've been arrested quite a few times, and even within Parliament, you made a point of heckling President George W. Bush when he spoke to a joint sitting of Australian Parliament in 2003, I think it was. How do you calibrate in advance the value of an action like that? Well, you just have to. And with speaking up on George Bush, I wasn't heckling him. I got, I got up and said to him directly because he'd got John Howard, the Australian Prime Minister, Deputy Sheriff, as he was called, to involve Australia in the Iraq War as Tony Blair had got Britain into the Iraq War. Hugely unpopular, but never in Australia. There was not even a parliamentary debate about it. So when George Bush came into our parliament to speak. And we had obsequiousness across the board from the big political parties. It was incumbent upon me as one of just two Greens in the parliament to get up and say, President Bush, you abide by the laws of this planet. Here's my father talking again. You abide by the laws of this planet and you will be respected. Because you see, he was breaking international law by invading Iraq. And There were two Australians in Guantanamo Bay. Bush had brought two Americans out of Guantanamo Bay to face the civil courts in America, but our Prime Minister was too obsequious to demand that those two Australians be sent home to Australia. So my other fellow member of the Greens, Kerry Nettle, got up and and spoke in their defence. And, of course, we copped it. There was a tirade from all the Conservative, and that includes the Labor Party MPs at the time. But I came home from that having felt the real heat. I nearly failed to get up on my feet. I'm forever grateful I didn't fail, but did get up. But the next morning I went to a cafe on the waterfront in Hobart, the retro, and had a cup of coffee. And as I walked in, the whole cafe got up and applauded and cheered. And it was... Such a wonderful thing to be back with the people 
as against the politicians who had caused this invasion, which, of course, we now know has led to some half a million people dying. I just felt at the time I had to say something, and I'm, I'm glad I did, and we thought it might lose, the Greens might lose out at the next election, but in fact, at the next election, we won an extra two seats. We doubled in numbers. That, I guess, does bring us to the subject of vindication, we might call it, which which does seem to be a point at which uh, you have arrived in your life on a few fronts. You spend a lot of time campaigning for things which were not at the time regarded as in any way a mainstream position, your environmental activism, your campaigns for gay and Indigenous rights. In Australia, at least, all of these things are now, well, arguably more than mainstream. They're almost conventional wisdom. Are you surprised that the rest of the country has, on a few things at least, kind of caught up with you? Oh, I love it. (laughs) And, you know, it's uh, 30 years ago, if I went walking up the street, I'd have to have somebody go with me because people would be yelling out, homophobic uh, abuse was rampant. And people saying, I'm going to kick your shins in and threats including death threats. These days, when I go up the street, and I haven't changed, people say, oh, Bob, can I have a selfie? It's, you know, it's all over the place, and it's particularly with young people. And I love it, and I love being able to give a licence to young people to become active. To get into politics, doesn't matter what brand, as long as they're standing for the future of the planet and the next generation and to healing some of the things that are going wrong at the moment, but also to become active. It's everybody's right. And, you know, one of the times I was arrested in a forest, trying to defend a forest which had, amongst other things, was the nursery of the largest freshwater crayfish on the planet, and that went to the High Court. And the High Court ruled that we had a right to be in there filming what was going on and in a representative democracy telling people what otherwise would have been going on behind closed doors to public forests. So there was the High Court of Australia ruling that there is a place for peaceful protest in a responsible democracy. But has there been, and it's another question I'm always interested in asking people who have lived a life of commitment to a particular cause, has there been any, I guess, philosophical progression in the other direction? Are there things that you think, looking back, you know what, I was just wrong and everybody else probably was right? Oh, well, not everybody else, but you're you're exactly right. (laughs) Uh, When the Franklin River was saved in 1983, after we had, uh, in the wake of Lake Pedder, where they didn't blockade, we blockaded the bulldozers moving in on that wilderness. 1,300 people were arrested and 500 myself included, went to jail. And then because people saw that on their televisions across Australia, a federal election was coming on and they changed the government and they changed from the pro-dam Liberals to the Stop the Dam Labor Party at the time and the Democrats in the, in the middle. And the incoming Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, did move to Stop the Dam and after a High Court case, four to three, the High Court ruled that he had the power over the state to stop that dam. And I thought then we were in a new age of environmental wisdom and that the environment was going to be treated better in in the future. But you know what happened? The big corporations and those exploiting the environment 
got together. We've had laws in Australia which have handed back such powers to the states. We have greenwashing. We have extraordinary collusion with politicians, massive lobbying by the miners, the loggers, the dam builders, the Antarctic krill exploiters, uh, a whole range of people exploiting the environment, and we have obsequious politicians falling in line. So I was very wrong about that. And the environmental conditions now, and of course we have had the onrush of climate change and the other side of that coin, which is loss of the species. And Australia is at the forefront of the extinction of species in the last century or two. And the way we're going at the moment, for example, we'll lose a third of our bird species this century. And that's why after I left the Senate, I established a foundation to not just rely on politics, though the Greens are growing in strength here and elsewhere around the world, but to peacefully defy the machines being sent in to destroy, well, for example, the Tarkina forest, the largest temperate rainforest in Australia at the moment. There's snow coming tomorrow night. It'll be a snow forest with all its masked owls and its Tasmanian devils and its wedge-style eagles and, and so on. And the minister, the federal minister for the environment, is currently working out whether she'll give a licence to a giant Chinese mining corporation to put a pipeline into that forest, and into part of that forest, and put acid mine waste in there. You know, uh, extraordinary, just incomprehensibly irresponsible for the most powerful environmentalist in Australia, the Minister for the Environment, Tanya Plibersek, to be even considering that. But she certainly is, and her predecessor, the Liberal Environment Minister, did give her the go-ahead for that, and she's had to reconsider it because we challenged it in the courts. But there you go. It's... Um, Wherever you look around, and, and news this week, in this last 12 months, 159 environmentalists were murdered around the world. Well, that hasn't this year happened in Australia, and at least we're in a functioning democracy, and it increases the need for us to make a stand. And one of our foundation members has just been today in Sarawak to be an international observer at a case where a big logging company, Sandling, was taking on Indigenous people with a writ in the court for millions of dollars to take them out of action. But that court action hasn't proceeded and the company has had to step back and the Indigenous people are celebrating a victory of sorts there in one of the most wickedly deforested areas on the planet. But, you know, we're all in this together. We need to support each other in the tough times, but we also need to celebrate when things go right. There's a contradiction there, though, or at least I think there's a contradiction, and your thoughts on it might be a, a, a good place to wrap, because, as you know, addressing things like environmental protection, addressing climate change, these are things that require uh, very long-term thinking. It requires politicians to think decades, centuries ahead. You've been a politician and you know, therefore, that politicians tend not to think like that because politicians want to get re-elected next year or the year after that. Is that contradiction actually resolvable? Yes, it is, because taking a seat in Parliament anywhere is an enormous privilege. But you have an obligation to your constituency to be a leader. And that means to defy things that are going wrong. You are elected to be a leader, 
not to be a follower, not to be told what to do by rich, influential sectoral interests, including the miners, the loggers and the people who want to exploit nature, let alone exploit people and take them down. So your job is to be in there advocating and taking a lead and sometimes getting a hammering over it because those interests do have an enormous sway on the airwaves and in the way in which people get their information. But nevertheless, my experience is if you stand up and confront them and explain to people why you're doing that, you'll prosper. And in my time in the Senate, at one stage, there was just one Green there. That was me. When I left, there was 12. And they'll continue to grow, provided they do make that stand. So that's what politics is about. It's about leadership. And if you do that, people will go with you. Bob Brown, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.